This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. As the world opens up and we're able to venture forth and go and explore again, it's essential that we have the kit we need so we don't leave nature hotspots disappointed. With that in mind, I cannot recommend Leica Sport Optics enough. Leica not only have a great range of optics for a wide range of uses, but they also offer finance plans to help people like me that would rather pay bit by bit. I'm currently using the Leica HD Ultravids, and now I can clearly see all the birds that I am also still unable to identify. Read more about Leica's range via their website in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that chats to people and experts from the world of wildlife, nature and conservation and shares it with you. Hello nature nerds, happy new year, I'm your host Ryan Dalton. If you're a new listener to Into the Wild, thanks for joining the gang. If you're a listener from previous years, welcome back and happy new year. I hope you all had a lovely Christmas break and enjoyed filling your gut with so much food. (laughs) and so much drink and I hope you were extremely merry throughout but it is great to be back under the duvet recording these intros for a brand new year and a brand new bunch of episodes of Into the Wild. Right 60 Second Nature News will be returning next week those of you that are new listeners 60 Second Nature News is a segment where Ryan tries to read out four positive nature stories in 60 seconds and fails. But that will be coming back next week because this is the first episode for the new year and I have some blooming exciting updates for you all. First of all, our big and let's face it ridiculously huge project beyond the trigger is kicking off in just seven days. In one week's time, myself, Into the Wild's editor Oscar and Professor Adam Hart will be setting off to Namibia for 10 days to interview Namibian people whose lives are directly connected to the landscape and wildlife and give them a platform here in the West to share their experiences and lives in wildlife conservation. I've got most things sorted apart from some insect repellent I still need to grab and Christina has sorted me out with some Factor 50 sun cream and now it's just a waiting game and fingers crossed for some negative PCR tests to allow us on that plane. My next update for you all is just as exciting, although it's much more local to me here in Highgate, North London. My best friend Kelly and myself have some rather sick news to share. Kel and I have a lot in common, but mainly we both love wildlife, love gardening, but both don't have gardens. Kelly noticed a fairly large bit of green space fit with its own pear tree that goes all the way around her block of flats. It's unused, mowed monthly and secure, so Kelly got in touch with the local council and asked if her and I could turn this into a wildlife community garden and (coughs) me, they said yes. So from February, we'll be starting work in adding no-dig flower and veg beds, hanging baskets of tomatoes, tyre stacks of spuds and hopefully a pond. Approximately 30% of all the veg we grow will be donated to our local soup kitchen too and I'm working with local ecologists to conduct surveys to see what is there now what is there later in the year, and what returns the following year. Super excited and watch this space for updates and social media. Right, before I get on to the intro of this episode, I've got some thank yous to give. First of all, I'd like to give a shout out to Tara and Erica for getting in touch with me to offer some organic wildflower seeds they harvested for my new community wildlife garden. And to my good pal and fellow podcaster over at For What It's Earth Pod, Emma, who is actually going to be on next week's episode, who is posting me some organic beetroot seeds for my veg beds. You're all total legends and this is the side of community gardening that I absolutely love the most. 
If you would like a shout out on the show or to be put into a draw to win a free Into the Wild podcast mug, yes please, then all you have to do is review the show on iTunes or Spotify or both and send me a screen grab, take part in our weekly nature highlight share every Sunday on Instagram, or you can tip Into the Wild via our Ko-fi link in the write-up of this episode. Of course, you can do all three of those things and increase your chance of winning the monthly mug. Right, on to today's episode. It's always hard to know where to start with the first episode of the year, but this one for me was a no-brainer. In the months leading up to Christmas, I met up with naturalist and wildlife photographer Ben Porter twice, once on the Isle of Bute and once on his home turf in North Wales. It was great to catch up with Ben. I'd seen his work throughout the lockdown years with his plant pot parabolics. Yeah, say that after a drink campaigned on social media along with Lucy Lapwing and also just being a fan of his work on social media with his photography. But what should we talk about? Well after meeting Ben twice it was clear that he had a love for seabirds so why not do an episode all about birds of the sea? And you lot will be happy to know that I now have a new favourite bird or let's face it just a favourite bird but I won't give anything away. (laughs) You can look forward to hearing about what animal that is on this episode. So without further ado, please welcome the first episode of 2022, Seabirds with Ben Porter. Ben, welcome to the first episode of 2022. Happy New Year to you, mate. Happy New Year. No, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. It seems like it's been a long time coming to get you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really happy to be here, man. It's been brilliant following this podcast going from strength to strength over this oh, last... Oh, you flatter me. You flatter me. <laughs> no, absolutely. This is what, it, it, it's becoming apparent <laughs> that all I do is invite people on the podcast to say nice things about the show, <laughs> which I'm not against. <laughs> Um, but it's lovely to have you here. Also, we met up twice towards the end of last year. It was I know, it's nice finally to actually happened. see each other in person. Finally it's happened. Finally happened. All It's all happening. It's all happening. No, it's great <laughs> to meet up. No, it's been really cool, actually. And having you on my local turf up here in North Wales yes. as well. Oh, that was incredible. Was How a... nice was that Airbnb? <laughs> it was pretty special, that. Just right along the edge of the estuary, like literally curlews, lapwings, widgeon on your doorstep. It was absolutely beautiful. Also, that. it was birds that I knew the name of. Now, that's that's good for mine. <laughs> good. If I go somewhere and there's loads of birds and I'm like, what? I don't know what that means. <laughs> but these ones I'd heard of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was happy with was... that pretty awesome place well it's lovely to have you here on the show we're gonna kick straight off with our first question mate first question first episode of the year ben do you want to tell everyone who you are and what is it you do so i am a young ecologist photographer researcher based in north wales i'm from north wales originally and have spent half of my life on a tiny little island off the slian peninsula (laughs) sticking out into the irish sea um, where I <laughs> grew up on the island where my family were running like sort of conservation farm essentially so my upbringing was immersed in that sort of like connection to land like managing the area mm. for sort of benefit of wildlife and the habitats there and surrounded by an incredible number of species of wildlife in this little place it's called Bardsey by the way unessentially which I need to get you out there it's an incredible place you do need um, to you told me so much about yeah, this place I know it's, 
it's pretty special and it was a, an immense privilege to sort of grow up there and that's what sort of yeah. sparked my lifelong interest in nature really and has sent me off on a path trying to immerse myself in sort of conservation research and all, all things to do with the natural world really so at the moment i am pursuing a research project focused on seabirds in the faroe islands where we'll probably touch on that a little bit later considering the focus of this podcast but looking at the impacts of light pollution and offshore developments on seabird populations up there particularly storm petrels which are one of my favorite bird species oh um, he's listed his favorite oof, already oof, got in there I, i've listened to the other I've, I've listened to the other podcast mate i i know what's coming later down the line i just thought i'd squeeze that one in yeah yeah he's like i'm getting this out of the way yeah, now getting this out of the way it's, more, it's the worst it's the least favorite question i ever get asked is what's your favorite species because we just, have to though i know i know it. i know i know because everyone's got one this is what i mean it's well, not asking a parent and well, oh, no, they always yeah. do i always get it out of people <laughs> well there we go <laughs> oh man yeah so i'm developing plans for a research project up there focused on those things and also sort of dabble in doing some freelance ecology works surveys practical conservation work uh sort of wildlife photography work for different organizations and things in wales and generally trying to like engage people with nature is one of my big passions yeah. uh, especially young people because i believe that is super super important and it's something that really helped me along my path in conservation, having people that were, you know, on hand to give advice and point out different things like mentors and things. So that's, I guess, a bit of me in a nutshell. Um, yeah. <laughs> how, how big was is the island that you grew up on? So Bardsey is only like two kilometres by a kilometre. So it's a, what? a small place. That's barely a rock. Well, it was only four of us there for about five months through the winter. You know, I was just there with our family living there through the winter. Are and you then in the, for in real? The, for real, yeah. And then in the summer, it's, you know, it's a super busy place. A lot of people that... Uh, well, wait, yeah. wait a minute. Wait, sorry. No. Sorry. What is your definition of super busy on a two kilometre right. long island? Yeah, well, it explains why I haven't spent much time there in There was cities. 19 people here this year. Yeah, well, it's relative. Fair enough. So, like, in the winter, it's just the four of us. And then... In March and April, you have the sort of semi-resident people that return for the summer mm. season, which is about 15 people. And then through the summer, you have people that come and stay on the island in the houses for like a week or two weeks, three weeks. And you have day visitors as well. A bit like uh, a bit like SCOMA, if people have been there to see the puffins, you know, you'll yeah. have day, day visitors come on and off during the day. So at, at points, you can have like 100 people on the island, which feels pretty okay, busy. Okay, so no, that feels is, pretty yeah, that busy, is quite you know? busy. It is quite yeah. busy. And if you have For that, essentially what is yeah, a high street. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a flipping good high street, I can assure you that. Is it? Do you have the high street? <laughs> no. Well, it's the single track that leads up the island with all the houses sort of like dotted along it. And uh, up that track, you can see, what can't you see? Little owls, Manxia was a nest along there. You've got chaffs. you got, I mean, what what don't you want on a high street? <laughs> Is there a Pret-a-Manger? That there isn't. No. No. See, no. that surprises me. Is yeah. there a Starbucks? There's usually a Starbucks there, everywhere. There is our, or what used to be our farm cafe, which uh, we did our best job to keep as a, a decent cafe, reasonable prices. I suppose in the winter, the cafe is just your kitchen. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Why go anywhere? Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, How yeah, far yeah. away from the co from the mainland? So are it's you? about uh, like 25 minutes on a boat on a good day from the, the cove where you leave off on the boat. But the channel of water in between the island and the mainland is renowned as sort of one of the worst patches of water in the in Wales, at least, for, for crossing. So you've got this really, really fast tidal race that squeezes through that channel. So any slight increase in wind direction, is, is you get this thing called wind against tide where 
it's exacerbated by the strength of the tide. So it's it's wow. you can get these specific areas around the coast where you get really big waves when you get a bit of wind against tide and just pretty gnarly stretch of water. So you, you can only cross in reasonable conditions. So you're often on your own for quite a while in the winter. <laughs> what was that like growing up on that kind of island? Because like, is it, so were you born on, not, well, not no, born I, on the island, but you you from a young age? Yeah, so I was born in, or grew up like half of my life in uh, North Wales in Conway. And then um, we moved there in 2007 when I was 11 and my sister was 13 at that point. So in the context of the winter growing up there, like because we all had like an extreme love both for the island and also just the natural world and we were farming the place and I was homeschooled there. So, you you, are, you know, your, your time is occupied. You're doing quite a few different things. Obviously, you are very much on your own. And I spent my time, you know, sort of wandering around, taking pictures, look, looking at the wildlife, recording the wildlife and everything, which is where a lot of my interest began is just going out exploring the island and looking at the changes in the seasons and really just getting super into my photography and trying to document all these things by camera and stuff. And that's how I spent a lot of my time. In the summer, when visitors come over as a teen, 12, 13 year old, a lot of people would have kids that came over. So you'd, you know, you'd hang out with like similar aged people at that time of year. So that would yeah. be a sort of like, that would be your soci- socializing your for the year. Time. You know, you get that done in the summer and then you're on your Todd for the winter, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's so insane. I mean, I tell you what, you were in, that's a good place to be for a pan, well, any time of year, but for the pandemic, wow. you must have been. Safe as houses. Well, so we moved off the island in 2018. So just as I was, as I was finishing university. Um, oh, no. we're now Yeah, so sort of, we don't live on the island anymore. We're based in, my parents are based in a cottage not far away on the mainland. And it's funny you should say that, like during the pandemic, it felt very much like just going back to living on an island because even though we weren't on an island, yeah. we functioned, we just went back to default island mode where, you know, <laughs> sort of do a shop every like three or four weeks. You know, we have like a decent veg garden here where mum, mum grows most of our own veg and stuff like that that and um there's just little changes to lifestyle that you have when you've been in that setting where you know you also just appreciate the sort of like the small things and you appreciate having like you know running water electricity all these things because (laughs) when you're on an island you know exactly where those come from and you you know your power is not just on tap as well you know you've got to have either a generator or solar panels wind power all these things so you're Mm -hmm. very deeply connected to your use of resources and things as well so um yeah it's fascinating things like living on an island and the the sort of lessons and things that you 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 earn from that time i must wind you up no end being a city boy just not so far these luxuries (laughs) (laughs) you haven't wound me up too much so far i have to say no you've been you've been all right all right so far i can be quite but i can you know but when you take me out of london london doesn't come with me that is a good thing about that's good all right but if Uh, you see me in london i'm clicking my heels down the high street and i'm I think we should probably let us let we need to get a date in the diary, get you over to Bardsey and do an episode. Experience of, yes. of being out there and, and see how see how you get on with that. I think that would be that would be really cool. It would be like the reverse of George of the Jungle. It'd be like <laughs> taking the city person to the jungle. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um that's amazing. So this I'm gonna my next question is a new question actually that I'm gonna put into the mm. episodes now. Slightly changing it a little bit. But what do you love most about the natural world? Oof, that's a good question. I think for me, it's the fact that no matter where you are, there's mm-hmm. always something fascinating to look at that yeah. just blows your mind a bit. You know, wherever you are, you can just wander out and get out into nature, whether that be in a city area or in a rural area, and whether it be a tiny, you know, tiny little insects or mosses or lichens or birds out you know on your doorstep like the dawn chorus in spring there's Mm -hmm. always something out there in nature that just like totally 
fascinates me and like you can just totally lose yourself in and just be totally bowled over by the just the wonder of it um and i think just being tuned into that when you're aware of nature and have had that experience i think being able to just be tuned into that is, is really special and uh something is just awesome to have that sort of connection really yeah i think when you learn that i think it's hard to ignore it wherever you go as exactly. well i think you end up start <laughs> automatically your eyes just go to it don't it? this is it which can be a pain for people that aren't into nature when you're out on a walk and you're just like <laughs> six miles behind just staring at a tiny little bit of lichen on a branch like whoa yeah. look at that yeah <laughs> a walk with my parents when i've got my camera they're like where the hell is yeah, right i was a mile back in that direction one. taking that's a picture of that yeah <laughs> that bit of yarrow growth <laughs> exactly. um, <laughs> yeah. So today we're talking about seabirds, which is that something that Welsh people very much like? Because Lizzie Daly loves a seabird as well. You love a seabird. Is this something that this is a common is, theme is, coming they, through? It is, isn't it? Is this is this a thing? Yeah. Well, I think our coastal environment, you know, is, is really special in Wales, and I think a lot of people are deeply connected to the marine environment across Wales' mm. coasts. So, Lizzie, you know, down in like Pembrokeshire, South Wales area, obviously you're surrounded by some amazing seabird colonies down there, and I think anyone yeah. that has that on their doorstep, it's hard not to notice yeah, and to true, ignore right? it. You yeah. know, they're they're pretty awesome. Things. Let's let's be honest. Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, so we're we're going to be talking a bit more. Like me, Lizzie and I spoke about them briefly, but mm. you and I are going to be going into a bit more detail. So, seabirds. There's loads of them. We wrongly call a lot of them seagulls. They don't just steal our chips. But Ben, what is it about seabirds you love? Right. So yeah. So seabirds, like in broad definition, I guess there's a few different categories that you could put seabirds into. Like for me, mm. the sort of pure seabirds are those that exist overwhelmingly at sea so like 80 or 90 percent of their lives are literally at sea you know in the marine mm. environment so you're talking things like cormorants and shags puffins kittiwakes gulls like our common ones like herring gulls that most people <laughs> are not too fond of um, um and you know species like that essentially but it could also in a broader sense encompass species like i guess like waders like herons and egrets and things that you get along the coast as well mm. but for me the sort of seabirds encompasses those pure ocean going birds that spend most of their lives out at sea and for me the thing that i love the most about seabirds is just how incredibly adapted they are for that environment and how little we know about where they go how they exist there and the mysteries of their lives, because the very fact that they spend most of their lives out at sea, they're out of sight, out of the ability of us to see what's going on. So only recently in the last couple of decades are we able to use technology like GPS tracking to find out where some of our most enigmatic seabirds are going to. You know, it was only 20 years ago that we solved the mystery of where puffins went for their winters. And they're one of the most celebrated, really? you know, celebrated of our seabirds yeah. in, in the whole of the world. So they, they've got such mysterious lives and we only get snippets of those lives when they come back to shore to breed, which obviously is an incredible thing to be able to see in these colonies that are so overwhelming. You know, when you go to seabird colonies, mm -hmm. it's just like a full sensory onslaught of sound, of smell, <laughs> of everything. And, you know, it's just the like... Smell. It, yeah, yeah, the smell. So it's, it's a potent one, you know. Um, <laughs> but those are that's a very small, concentrated period that you're seeing of their lives. And then the rest of the time, boom, you know, they're out at sea, gone. So I think those are the, those are the elements of seabirds that just most appeal to me as well it's just like it's such an incredible existence that they have so how so like you said because these birds are so adapted to live 
by or out at sea what kind of adaptations have they got or how have they evolved to be able to live so much of their time out at sea yeah well it's an interesting one they're they're so adapted for life at sea that they actually expend a lot more energy when they're like back on they only come to land to breathe so it's almost like a a pain in the butt for them they have to oh you know to go back to an (laughs) island or go back back to the coast to actually (laughs) have a rock or a little ledge where they can you know raise their next offspring they they are so incredibly adapted to just be literally out in the open ocean so some of the adaptations so a lot of seabirds are able to swim and exist like underwater to catch their prey obviously a lot of them Mm -hmm. feed on fish so think about things like shags and cormorants you know they're diving underwater they've got incredible plumage adaptations that allows them to do that big webbed feet that they can swim underwater and gannets obviously one of my you know one of again another favorite another uh, another favorite not the favorite Not the favourite, but another favourite. Um, their adaptation, you know, to be able to dive from, you know, 40, 50 metres high straight in the water and yeah, pursue fish underwater yeah. with their web. You know, they've got some incredible adaptations, but their true adaptation, I would say, is the ability to navigate and to use the elements out at sea to to travel, essentially. Because obviously, mm. um, as a seabird, you're existing on usually fairly spread out prey sources. You know, they're trying to exist by feeding on food, and that's usually sort of fish, which is quite spread out in nature usually so you know they've got to navigate find food and exist out in a fairly featureless marine environment so the the adaptations that most capture my imagination in that sense are you know for one how they navigate so all the different senses that they use and the methods that they use for navigating our worlds like oceans you know think about migrations as well from the north Mm. to the southern hemisphere things like arctic turns going from the arctic to the antarctic every year it's just mad isn't it yeah absolutely it's absolutely (laughs) mental yeah um for two using the elements in the ocean so like albatrosses for instance they're more efficient at flying when there's a 30 or 40 mile an hour wind out there because they just lock out their wings and use what's called dynamic soaring to just cover hundreds and hundreds of kilometers with barely any energetic output because they can just literally glide across the wind capturing the wind's energy a bit like you see maybe like a red kite or something floating along or a buzzard or something floating along mountain lines where you get that updraft they use the updraft off waves to just glide along and just travel you know hundreds and hundreds of kilometers it just blows your mind and then other adaptations for finding food and things you know some seabirds can use a pretty acute sense of smell and can literally smell out their prey from tens of kilometers downwind and navigate to them what? but also use that sense of smell to navigate on a broader context by knowing what areas of the ocean smell like across the vast areas of our ocean so that's <laughs> yeah. insane can you yeah. imagine having that imagine i'd love to have that sense for like a day or maybe Imagine. just an hour. I know. Yeah, literally an hour would do, right? <laughs> it might get a bit intense. <laughs> yeah, it might get a bit intense. Jesus, yeah. being able to so, smell just like direction and also food. It's just incredible, isn't it? So I think, you know, there's, there's, I mean, there's so many adaptations to go into, but those are a few of the ones that really just like blow your mind a bit. Like you said, they're travelling like hundreds of kilometres at any one time or, for, mm. for, you know, for like quite a long time. Yeah. Can seabirds fly for a long time like obviously not not been able to land as easy a lot of them might land on the surface of the water but do they fly for longer periods of time than most of our land birds it's a good question i think it depends on the species so Mm. some species because of their physiological adaptations and their anatomy so Mm. things like albatrosses and shearwaters they're really well adapted to just like i was saying use the energy of the wind to travel quite long distances with, with, to be honest, not much energetic output. So they will travel probably more than your average bird. 
whereas others, because of their size and shape, aren't quite as adapted for traveling long distances. So like shags and cormorants, you know, they're quite, Mm. they're almost goose-like, but they don't travel quite so far distances. On the other hand, you have complete outliers like frigate birds, which can't really get their plumage wet, so they can't (laughs) land on the sea. So they travel thousands of kilometers without ever touching down and just use massive sort of like thunderstorms and big storm systems out at sea to just gain altitude, like hundreds of meters of altitude, and then just glide out slowly over big tracts of ocean. So they just, get, they just go as high as they can go. They just go as high as they go <laughs> and then just glide out for th- like hundreds of kilometers. So what was that bird It depends called, on sorry? the species. The frigate birds. Yeah, frigate birds. Oh, okay. A, hilarious name. B, <laughs> you're a seabird and you can't get wet. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Mate. Quite funny, isn't it? Yeah. Mate, what is like? <laughs> They're also... That's just one of those yeah. animals that you're just like... It's like the swift and not being able to land it, or being exactly. take off it's, from the... Like, it's like, what are you exactly. doing, mate? It's like the ocean equivalent of the swift, really. Yeah. Frigate it's bird. so funny. I think that Frigate might be birds. my new favourite <laughs> We'll have to do oh, some sort of hilarious. cartoon with that, I think. I That'll just, be I can't believe that. Yeah, I can't believe that's a thing. That's like, you know, it's just evolved going like, eh, yeah, because like, that's easy. Like a lot of people, you could look at that from two directions. One going, the frigate bird's amazing. It can fly thousands yeah. of kilometres without landing. It's like, or it can't land in water, so it has to fly fast. It's quite <laughs> funny, isn't it? Yeah, which way around is it? Yeah. yeah. Well, oh, the other thing is, hilarious. the other thing that's really cool about them is they're what are called kleptoparasitic. So read that as pirates, basically. So a bit like skewers, they only exist by stealing food off other seabirds. So that's how they get their food, is seeing that something else has just caught a fish and then going and like nabbing it off the other bird. Well, that makes sense because they can't, yeah, yeah they can't go exactly. down to the water to get the food. So that's, <laughs> that's another factor. Exactly. Yeah. It's quite funny. God, it's amazing. They're like the, the... Dickensian orphans just pickpocketing around. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what an amazing animal. <laughs> yeah, they are. That's incredible, though, that some birds can fly that kind of distance because I think we say thousands of kilometres without fully understanding. No, totally. Know, or appreciating, yeah. rather, how yeah. far that actually is. It really is. It's a fairly recent piece of research that, that revealed that, yeah, they were just like using these massive storm systems and like updrafts of air currents over the ocean. Usually you get these over land quite often, like thermals, things like raptors that use those, you know, birds of prey that thermal up above land in sort of rising columns of warm air and then can travel long distances. But it hadn't been shown that seabirds would be doing that out at sea, like literally over vast distances. So it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it makes sense as well, doesn't it? Because I mean, the amount of storms that happen out at sea and the well, amount of so currents so and, and yeah. wind currents that you have out there, it's, it's almost like simplistic put in like but free yeah. energy for birds to yeah. be able to use so to true. push them across um yeah so with the many species how are seabirds categorized into species or group is it is that an easy question to define or is it kind of there's loads of groups or it's pretty straightforward so there are there are quite a few different groups i'll try and rattle off a few of the sort of more commoner ones um for instance that we get in the uk um mm. so i'll start with our favorite of course gulls yeah That's, we love uh, a gull. fairly we love gulls uh no there's a lot to be said for gulls they're fascinating creatures very intelligent <laughs> um so we've got gulls so that includes both the ones that we are very familiar with so things like herring gulls great blackback gulls but also kittiwakes classified as gulls which you get breeding on you know islands around um and coastal cliffs and things but also inland some of the colonies you get you have petrels and shearwaters which are my personal like big favorite group of seabirds so they (laughs) 
are more broadly classified as what are called tube-nosed seabirds. So same broader order or family as uh, albatrosses. So they've got tube-nosed bills with these two little tubes on the on the top of the bill where they excrete salt so that they they actually get a lot of their water from their prey but they can also sort of like essentially sort of drink salt water and excrete the salt from oh, that wow. to gain their own so that's why they have these little tube nosed it's like a, a concentrated like salt ground where they excrete it through there so things like storm petrels manx shearwaters and also albatrosses they have these these specialized bill structures and they are called tube noses that's a lot more adapted than the frigate bird yeah well, yeah they're, they're doing well they're doing well you know a few uh yeah a few <laughs> yeah they're doing well they're my, my personal favorite category and you get those breeding on quite remote islands offshore a bit like barzi mm. where i used to live so we have both storm petrels and manx shearwaters breeding there yes. so you've got gulls petrels and shearwaters and then you have orcs I always orcs. like saying that one. Yeah, you have orcs. orcs. Yeah, not quite what you see marching through the screens of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> they're actually like more akin to to, to penguins. Really, they're, they're they're our northern equivalent of penguins. So they're they're sort of black and white, quite stout little seabirds that are very upright in stance and quite clumsy on land, but have got. <laughs> almost like a sort of pigeon-like gait to them as well. So you've got puffins, which is probably the most you know well-known right. of all our seabirds. That is an orc. So it's in the, the family that also sits alongside guillemots, razorbills, black guillemot and little orc, most of which we get in little the UK. Little orcs. Little orcs. I love a little orc, you know. <laughs> Sounds like a yeah. nickname for a nephew. <laughs> oh, here he it's is, little orcs. Isn't it? Little orc, yeah. And oh yeah, I should probably like clarify that it's spelled A U K, which is just quite funny that it sounds like O R C, isn't it? It's great. Yeah, I okay. Uh, yeah, you, do yeah. you know what? Really, weirdly, I yeah. went down the awkward, the the slang for awkward route than I did. Yeah, yeah. there's all okay. sorts of different. Yeah, so you've got the orcs, which breed in quite dense colonies around the coast. So you often get like thousands and thousands of these things, like on, on ledges alongside each other mm. or amongst rock crevices and things. Puffins, they breed in, in burrows underground in a little chamber. And, you know, we've got some of our biggest breeding populations in, in the UK down here in Wales, like on Skoma, where most people yeah. go to see puffins, you know, big me big mecca for the old puffins. <laughs> um, <laughs> then cormorants and shags, that's its own group in itself. We only have the cormorant and the shag, the European shag and the cormorant in the UK. But worldwide, you know, there's loads of other different species of cormorants and shags. In its own slightly funky group, um, the gannet. So it's, it's actually in a broader group that, is more tropical in nature, so they're called mm. boobies in uh, in the tropics. Again, they've got all the best names. Don't why are you smiling, Ben. Why are you smiling when you say that? <laughs> I'm not at all. We're, you know, childish. we're way more grown up on we Into are. the Wild than laughing yeah. at boobies. Yeah. I'm. Oh, come on. No, wait. No, we're not. That's hilarious. Sorry. No, we're not. <laughs> Unbelievable. So yeah, gannets in the UK this is the pretty much the only species represented in that group. But in the tropics, you have things like red-footed boobies, and blue-footed boobies, masked boobies, all these other species that exist mm. around there. So obviously, a lot of people know you know what gannets look like. Absolutely, maybe one of our more charismatic, yeah. more charis All seabirds are charismatic. It's one of the most charismatic, I would say, amongst uh, the seabirds. They're all awesome, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bring them down. Um, <laughs> I, don't th I don't think any gannets listen to the show, so you are yeah, safe. okay. All right, that should be all right. Yeah, <laughs> not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that you know, there's there's only a handful of groups really. I'm trying. I think. I've probably forgotten some. I'm really good at just forgetting like really obvious species sometimes. But in the in the purest sense of like seabirds, as I was saying before, that spend most of their time out at sea, those are the main groups um, yeah. that we can find as well. Yeah, around the UK. 
And you said like Wales is a great area, and well, a lot of the UK is, is good areas to see seabirds. But are there other hotspots around the world that is known for its? Especially when I ask this question, I guess I'm talking about breeding. Is is there areas where you know seabirds come together in great numbers? Are there hotspots around the world apart from the UK? Yeah, if you're if you're talking about breeding, then seabirds more often than not are found on like islands, really, um, islands and archipelagos around the world, because they need places that have little disturbance and no introduced predators, so things like rats and mice, which completely decimate colonies. So they need islands that are safe from predators to breed. There are islands that are super dense that spread all across the oceans, but they're often found in the really productive waters of the south and the north. So they they essentially commute to these really seasonally productive waters to breed. So you, in the northern hemisphere, obviously, that's places like the UK, further north, like Svalbard and the Faroe Islands. These places have incredible breeding colonies of seabirds in the summer months, but they are mm. out at sea essentially during the winter. Yeah. And the same in the southern oceans, you have hotspots of islands be it around the Pacific in the sort of Macronesia area or the you know the Azores is closer to the equator actually but they have some really important seabird populations as well basically like most island archipelagos around the sort of world have really important populations of seabirds but the southern oceans I would say is the absolute mecca for seabirds like getting down towards Antarctica the the density of seabirds that you'll find feeding around some of these areas where there's particular like nutrient upwellings as well in certain areas mm. where you just get a bit like the the Benguela current and things off uh, South Africa yeah. you know you get these specific like productive areas of waters that are incredible for feeding and you get super intense um aggregations but that's looking more at now the sort of like the off season the feeding areas really um, yeah. which comes back to what I was saying before of like seabirds in reality could happily exist out in the middle of nowhere where there's really productive waters feeding on fish for a lot of the year, but they've got to come back to land to breathe. That's their <laughs> sort of, that's their sort of catch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So where have you been to see seabirds? Apart from your your local hotspots, where have you been? So, I, yeah, seabirds are a really important um, part of my sort of like um, the things I do in, in terms of the natural world, in terms of research mainly. So mm. I've been, um, yeah, I'm really lucky to have uh, done a fair bit of work one of them out in the Azores with a friend who was doing a PhD. So that's like slap bang in the oh, middle cool. of the uh, the Atlantic, sort of west of Portugal, right along the mid-Atlantic ridge. So mm. it's like a volcanic origin of like islands that are just poking up above the sea and got really important breeding populations of particularly shearwaters and storm petrels there. So I was on a tiny little island about a quarter of the size of Bardsey out there for about six months. <laughs> so even smaller than Bardsey, just a single a quarter, a of, quarter the size of the size. Jeez, was that just the boat? Are you counting uh, that as an island? <laughs> it was a, literally a lump of rock and a little hut on it where we were studying storm petrels and, uh, and shearwaters. So I spent uh, six months out there. Uh, a friend, Hannah Harrowood, who was doing her research on two quite important species of storm petrels that breed there. And um, we were mainly looking at their behaviors and ecology of the the breeding so they bred in like these artificial nest boxes that have been made on the island that they were mm. breeding in and it meant that you could access the breeding chambers really easily to see um to access them for like studies and research yeah. but we were also putting gps tags on them to find out where they were foraging and things and then one of the other locations i've done a bit of work more recently is the faroe islands so north of the uk in between the shetland isles and iceland and that area is again super important for seabird particularly storm petrels so there's like the biggest global population of storm petrels in the world exist on a little island offshore there which were, was where i was last summer in 2021 um, and hope to set up a research project longer term there looking at these tiny little seabirds which weigh amazing. about the same as a house sparrow you know they're tiny amazing and is there this is oh, this might be a hard question 
for you? Is there a species that you would love to see that you haven't yet? There are many. There are many species. Is there loads? But... I didn't think there'd be many. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've not spent any time in the Southern Oceans yet, so I've got a lot to go for. But albatrosses, <laughs> you know, like, obviously, we learn about these from an early age, and they are just yeah. incredible-looking things. And I've never seen one. I know we get, occasionally get black-browed albatrosses turning up in the UK. I've still not mm-hmm. caught up with one. Um, but an albatross would be incredible to see. Any species, really, but that would be magnificent. And a particularly, a, maybe a slightly more niche one is something called a snow petrel, which snow breeds petrel. a snow petrel. They are the most, oof, they are incredible looking. <laughs> right, are I'm, just, Googling yeah. it. I'm Googling it. <laughs> They're just literally snow white with this dark little bill, dark eye, and they breed literally on the ice down in Antarctica. It's, uh, they're pretty Oh, incredible. wow. Okay, yeah. no, they are beautiful. Yeah. Okay, yeah, if you're listening to the podcast and you're not driving, Google. <laughs> I always say that as if I've got some crazy listeners. So I'll just head down Google now on the M25. Um, snow petrels, yeah. They're pretty cool. Beautiful white with pitch black yeah, eyes and beak. Literally. That is beautiful. Yeah. And where are they? So they exist, yeah, Southern Ocean's down in sort of Antarctic waters and they they breathe like on oh yeah the ice. Course, they're pretty that makes sense. yeah yeah well exactly yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, was, the color kind of gives away where they'd yeah. be from that, yeah <laughs> uh they breed in scotland actually <laughs> do they breed in scotland no, no i was kidding i was kidding sorry all right was, no, I shouldn't have said see, that. Yeah. see this yeah. is what yeah, people try and make those jokes on into the wild forgetting that i'm an idiot with, especially uh, with birds ben <laughs> i'll just believe would, anything you say i'd love to i'd love to have um, them in scotland are there threats to seabirds or things that are affecting populations around the world? I guess it's species specific, but is there any kind of that, like interlink? Yeah, this is one of the big ones with seabirds, really. They're the most endangered, threatened group of birds in the world as, as oh, a wow. group. Yeah, seabirds are hammered by it all, unfortunately. So there's a whole plethora of threats that are thrown at mm. them. But unfortunately, one of the probably one of the biggest historically leading up to the current time is introduced mammals on the breeding islands that they exist on around oh, the yeah, world of so course, yeah. things like rats rabbits goats that we've populated little remote islands with around the world mm. as we've sailed around looking you know sort of you know goes back quite a few hundred years really this sort of yeah. effect that's been had um the introduction sometimes accidentally to be fair you know they can be stowaways in boats and a rat it only takes a pregnant female rat to arrive on an island and they decimate yeah, it doesn't take much <laughs> it doesn't take much and they will multiply and just completely decimate colonies because they feed on the eggs sometimes they feed on the chicks they'll maybe even feed on adult birds that are just sat there on the nest because they haven't encountered this threat before so they're literally just being eaten alive sometimes so wow. it's, it's pretty grim and that has wiped out colonies on so many mm-hmm. islands around the world and obviously if they can't breed and rear a chick successfully then that's them you know going down the drain a bit because most seabirds only have a few eggs each they only have they're long-lived birds you know 30 40 years for a lot of them and so they only have one chick a year usually so if that is wiped out then you get this thing where you know they might not be able to breed for most of their lives and then you know these really because they're long-lived you might not see that fully in the population until those birds die off and then you're suddenly like oh wow you know we've lost a huge number now um wow. so those are, that's one of the biggest threats that's occurred the good thing about that is it's very much you can remedy it you know if it's a if it's mm-hmm. an appropriate place then you can eradicate these introduced mammals it takes it's a big operation and there's some really experienced teams that work around the world on islands including the uk we've had a number of islands in the last 10 years that have been declared rat free after eradication programs and they're wow. already starting to you know starting to recover starting to restore and it's not just 
the seabirds, it's the actual habitat sometimes on these islands that yeah. has been totally degraded and reduces the seabird colonies and the habitat they can breed in. So that's one of the big ones. And that is the good news about that one is it's one of the few like you can see the immediate effect. Literally, you know, if you eradicate mammals from an island the next year, the next few years, stuff will return and they'll start breeding. Wow, so, so it, it only a, takes a couple of years yeah, to really well, start can to regenerate. Do, depending where it is, you know, it can take that, you know, wow. short spaces of time, which is brilliant. Um, the slightly more insidious effects are fisheries is a huge one. So um, obviously both the overfishing of our oceans, which I'm sure you're aware of, is is a pretty pressing issue. Obviously that has globally reduced the amount of prey that, you know, we're essentially competing with <laughs> the seabirds yes, just yes. decimating their food source essentially. <laughs> so it's pretty, you know, that's a pretty mm. huge one. But also indirectly through fishing operations, things like bycatch. So where unfortunately things like seabirds are caught at the same time as we're trying to catch fish. So long lining and hooks that are set out or even, you know, even um, purse netting as well. All these operations that happen offshore, you can end up with quite significant mortality to birds. So one of the big ones is long line fisheries where you have miles and miles of hooks that are set out for fish. But because each one of those hooks is baited with a bit of fish, Seabirds see that as free game. They come Just down, grab birds, the yeah. yeah, grab the similar as, as marine um, animals do as well. They grab that fish, but then they're on the hook. So you get tens of thousands of albatrosses and other seabirds killed each year from that. Jesus. Again, there are some amazing things being done to try and counter mm. that, both in policy but also in just real practical terms, working with fishing industry to implement devices and things that reduce that. And there are simple things that can be done where you have like bird scaring flags and things on these lines which mm. deter birds from coming to the lines and rigging the hooks so that they sink to a certain depth so that they're out of the way of the bird. There's, there's like a few things that are starting to be done that have had like I can't remember I think there's one Namibian fisheries where BirdLife International have been working with them and it's reduced albatross cut bycatch by like it's like 98% or something you know it's really wow, cool. Wow that's incredible. Really cool so there's some yeah. great stuff happening to counter these effects but you know, with climate change, plastic pollution in the oceans all thrown in the mix, you know, it's not a pretty sight. And yeah. lots and lots and lots of seabird species are in free fall and decline. And, you know, we're witnessing that in the UK, you know, some islands where species like puffins have bred, you know, historically have just completely hit the fan. They're now on the, the red list of endangered species in the UK. And, you know, for conservation concern, we have the Atlantic puffin, the European shag, you know, all these species that we perceive as being quite common and you know you get big colonies of them but they are in pretty dramatic decline so it isn't a pretty picture and that is one of the reasons why i'm so passionate about seabirds is like trying to find out you know what we can do to to help them and research yeah. the causes behind these declines and not that i because i don't like to put you know um responsibility on the consumer to solve mm. the problem i don't like to do that but i do at the same time appreciate that a lot of people hear this kind of information and go i just want to help i just want to make sure i'm doing the right thing or yeah. or putting my money in the place that helps most is there anything that listeners or people can do that can help improve whether that even be policy or whether that's just um methods of where they get their fish is there anything we can do to be helping seabirds I think, yeah, I think there's quite a lot that we can be doing as a consumer. I think for one, you know, if you do eat fish, consider mm. the sources to really try and research, you know, where you're getting the your fish from. Obviously, 
it's sometimes tricky because different labeling systems and things have been found to be actually not that great but looking yeah, on yeah. looking on websites like the marine conservation society and looking at what their recommendations are for like sustainable fish mm. to be got in different supermarkets or there's a really great one the cornwall seafood guide down in cornwall which has got it really nice. great because they they're linked in with local small scale fishermen down there that you know exactly yeah. what their practices are and things so you can really look at, you know analogous to getting your meat from really sustainable sources on land that has an effect on you know the sort of uh, habitats and ecological effects on land it's similar in terms of thinking about that for where you get your seafood or even again cutting down on the amount of seafood you eat because it is you know plastic pollution in the ocean 50 or 60 percent comes from fisheries operations as well so it has a huge effect so you do want to think really you know hard about where you're getting your fish so that's one big thing as a consumer and obviously spreading mm -hmm. awareness of that fact. You know, a lot of people might not be aware that the fish they're getting is causing massive detrimental effects to really important seabird species worldwide. So yeah. that sort of thing, raising awareness of that could have a big effect. The second thing is actually like citizen science projects. So this is quite an interesting mm -hmm. one where there are some really interesting projects online that you can basically enroll on to help out as a bit of a yeah citizen scientist essentially it's openly available you can sort of like do as much or as little as you want but there's different scientific research projects that you can access and help out by analyzing a lot of projects are based on getting like uh, camera trap footage of colonies or things around the world and they're often set out for long periods of time on specific nests and things where you want to find out if those nests succeed if the chick dies what causes that death all these little things like the amount of food that parents are bringing in and because there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of this footage people can just watch an hour two hours of bits of footage and like put specific markers at points when things happen on those wow. on those bits of footage and then that's fed back to the researchers and they can better analyze that footage by cutting out essentially the amount of time that it takes to analyze that um, yeah. and there's a really great website called zooniverse where a lot of this happens for all sorts of species worldwide but there's a specific one called the seabird watch project and that's been running all sorts of different research projects on species around the world and there's a few that you can help out with right now actually someone is doing a project on round island petrels um down in mauritius and she's got tons of time lapse footage that she's taking for a phd project and is trying to analyze that and people can help out with that so it's a really cool way of in involving people and you might have heard of the um, the Pufferazzi project, which was a brilliant citizen science project led the by Pufferazzi the Pufferazzi project. I have I not know. heard of that, oh, and I'm so... over the moon that I've now heard of that. <laughs> so that that is a really cool project that I believe is still ongoing. It's run by the RSPB in the UK, and basically people who are at seabird colonies, puffin colonies specifically, if they take pictures of puffins with fish in their beaks, they're asked to send those pictures in to the team and then they can actually like analyze which species they're bringing in, the length, the size of these fish. Wow. And then because they can get information from all colonies around the UK, because tons of people send their pictures in, they can then look at, okay, this season, for some reason, they're only bringing in really tiny sand eels or not many sand eels or not even sand eels at all, they're much less high protein ones. And so we know that there's something not quite right out at sea because mm. there's not enough fish populations of this species to be fed to their young. So it just helps build up that picture of why population crashes are happening. So this Pufferazzi project, I think it's ongoing. And I think this coming year, you'd probably be able to contribute to it as well. But it's a really powerful one where, you know, you can get some really amazing results um, from that, um, finding out about why populations are changing, what they're feeding on, 
and how we can help. So there's yeah, so there's quite a lot you can do actually. Yeah, I, I love citizen science programs like that because it's just it, it just shows that power is in numbers, isn't it? It's like yeah. the more people that are willing to just give, even if it's like 10, 15 minutes to a project, can if loads of people do that, that's where you start to see the help yeah. come in. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. While I've got you, I've got to also talk to you about a plant pot parabolic, Oof. which that's easier to say. <laughs> Usually I do the show with a glass of whiskey in my hand, and I'm very glad that I'm not doing that today. Uh. Otherwise I could have slurred my way through that. I've got to talk to you about this. So it was a bit of a, I, you know, this is I don't think this is too a grandiose a term to say it was a bit of a movement last year. But can you tell us a bit about the plant pot, par- which I think I can see behind you? Oh, yeah, there's two there, actually. Yeah. Is that, I was going right. to say, is that That's my stash you? of plant there's pot parabolic. That's your stash of plant yeah. <laughs> um, Can you tell us a bit about what this was and how it started? Sure, yeah. So this started during the first lockdown, so 2020 in the spring. Um, and I've always been quite passionate about soundscapes and particularly bird sounds and song, bird sounds and song, like going out in the mornings, listening to the dawn chorus, trying to record different species calling and things. And I've never invested in like really expensive equipment. And I've, in the last couple of years, increasingly used my mobile phone just because, well, as you'll know, for doing podcasts, you can often get really good recordings just over yeah, people. Yeah. People don't realise that, you know, you can get a really good recording just <laughs> you can get on such apps good on your stuff, phone. Yeah. Like, and uh, for a while I was just recording bird song um, on my phone and I was making short, like, immersive video clips mm. and films about just you know nice scenes with a bit of the dawn chorus in the background for those that maybe weren't able to hear that or get out to those areas but i was aware that there's a device called the parabolic reflector which uh, professional sound recorders usually use to get really amazing recordings of birdsong because it's really directional and it's essentially a dish that concentrates the sound into the center where there's a recording device and it picks mm. up species that are quite distant or quite quiet you get really good sound recordings um and I, I can't remember exactly how it came around. I was just walking around the garden. I was like, oh, that plant pot looks like it would make a really good parabolic <laughs> reflector. So in that, that afternoon, I just... Said no one ever. <laughs> I, 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 I asked my mum permission to use the plant pot and uh, that afternoon crafted it up, shoved my phone in the, in the centre of it and put it on recording. And it's one of those ones where you can... Um, the app allowed me to like plug my headphones in so that you can hear what you're recording at the same time. And then, yeah, just started using it. So it's just got a handle on the back a little place for mounting the phone in the center of it. And then I just started using it. I was like, oh, oh, wow, this works. Like, you know, you could noticeably <laughs> hear how how loud and like amplify the sounds of birds were. So I was like, this is great. So then, you know, that whole spring, because obviously there's a lot less traffic and everything as well. I was just out and about recording birdsong and calls and sounds. And I put a few posts on social media, which a lot of people saw it and really liked just the, the, the concept of it and the fact that I'd done it. And I think few, a few people made one that, that spring and summer as well but it didn't really take off as like a big a big thing but then over the winter good old lucy lapwing she um made good old one. lucy, good old lucy. yeah <laughs> she um yeah she got in touch she was like oh, i really like you know want to make one of these um hope you don't mind i'm gonna do some you know posts about it and stuff like yeah go for it like i want everyone to make one yeah. and experience it so <laughs> she made one and she was doing a brilliant bird song identification videos at the time as well incorporated she made a few videos you know one of like how she constructed hers you know there's lots of different ways you can make them and then that gained a lot more attention as well during i think it was like january february march sort of time it was quite early spring and so a lot more people started seeing that and then nina constable filmmaker down in cornwall absolutely amazing amazing person definitely check out her work she was doing her 
Wild World series, Doorstep Discoveries, like yes. these amazing yeah. little pieces of different people across the UK of like the nature that they were seeing on their doorsteps and making these lovely films during the whole 2020, you know, early 2021 sort of lockdown period. And she got in touch with like, why don't we do something for Dawn Chorus, you know, in the spring? So then that's when the whole sort of we started coming up with the ideas for this sort of campaign where we try and get people out making these things, getting out in the spring, recording all the different Dawn Chorus sounds on their on their doorstep, and then specifically try and get everyone out into whatever patch of habitat they had next to them on Dawn Chorus Day on the 2nd of May and record that and share it online with everyone and also sending clips to us so that we could make a little bit of a compilation of that. And so, yeah, it it was amazing. You know, it felt really powerful on the day of just like hundreds of people yeah. all across the country who made these parabolics who were getting out, you know, tuning into the bird song and sharing that experience at that time across the digital platform. It was a really powerful experience. One of the highlights of 2021 for me, like hands down, it was absolutely fantastic. And uh, I believe uh, you featured quite nicely in there as well. You uh, joined the campaign, <laughs> I remember. I, I do remember. I did. Yeah. I did. I've got to, I've got to say this. Because you've you, Christina made mine. I didn't make it. I'm of course so at <laughs> making anything apart from food. I can make food, but I cannot make anything like material. So Christina was like, "I'll do it for you." Uh, but what I liked about it is it was so accessible. It was so like, like you said, it wasn't like you need. £200 to buy these materials. It was like everyone's got a mixing bowl exactly. somewhere or someone will have a plant pot or yeah. someone will know someone. And it was, it really wasn't much to do. And I yeah. had a mic that I could put in and obviously I got the sounds of the parakeets because I'm from London. Exactly. <laughs> so that was the easiest thing yeah. for me to crack. <laughs> Couldn't hear anything else. It's actually harder the... <laughs> to get something without yeah, the parakeets. I was going to say, just the raucous um, cries of the parakeets. Yeah, in fact, you don't even need a parabolic to hear that clearly, but it was incredibly clear. <laughs> yeah, it was even <laughs> clearer. Parabolic. Parabolic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. It, like, I agree with what you said. It was that powerful, like just seeing the kind of the montage of videos of that came through of people in these different and just looking so happy doing yeah, it as well which i think thing. was yeah. that connection side of going you know i'd listened to parakeets god knows how many times so much so that i don't hear them now yeah. but it's it actually tuning into it again yeah. especially in that time of may when we had that beautiful weather it, it you know it does take you to a bit of this tropical yeah <laughs> london forest sure. where you're just like oh this is amazing that's so, it yeah. yeah it was cool it was good fun that no, was good fun that um yeah need to think up uh some ideas for this coming year actually because i think it'd be cool to do something similar again actually and uh you know build on that even if it's just a similar thing the same thing again because it's just such a yeah. great yeah, it's just such a great thing and brought a lot of people together over that so yeah the excited. other thing that was hard with mine being on hampstead heath in may <laughs> I, I, Nina will tell you this, is that I would say a good 30% of my recordings <laughs> was of people shouting dogs' names. Yeah. But you could hear them incredibly clearly. That's that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That's a, um, a, a London soundscape. But it was soundscape. like the middle of the day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was lucky there was no sirens or any, you know, anything like that. But there was a lot of like, Hugo, come here. And I was like, that's not the kind of bird we're looking Venton. Fenton! 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 Um, and I, it wasn't me shouting my dog's name, so that was good. Uh, <laughs> Last question of the podcast, Ben, oh, wow. is... I know. Didn't it go quick? It's gone quick. It's gone quick. <laughs> if you could pass on one bit of advice on to everyone regarding the natural world, what would you pass on? It's a tough one, isn't it? I think just be curious. Like, mm. the learning never stops when you're into nature there's always so, so much to learn no matter what level you're at 
and mm. just tapping into that and encouraging that natural curiosity when you're in nature just takes you a long way because we're always going to make mistakes and things but there's always so much to find out and it's always so humbling when you're into nature because like you always just discover things that either you have no idea about or other people might well know have no idea about as well you know there's always mm. so many incredible discoveries and awe-inspiring wonder to be had just following that curiosity that natural curiosity when you're out in the natural world and what takes your attention and just like watching a little spider you know making its web over the course of an hour you'll you'll probably discover some amazing things of that you know if you just spend the time yeah. doing that so i think yeah curiosity i think is, is probably a real key ingredient to that journey but that's a tough question yeah <laughs> do you know what i'm gonna to add to yours is be curious but don't worry about getting it wrong there we I go. I think that's Thanks. what stops. Amended, yeah. no, Amended I... <laughs> version. Perfect. <laughs> no, I'm adding, that's my little bit of advice. Because oh, right. I think something that I think I saw, not just I saw actually, I feel a lot is sometimes I'm like, I just don't want to get it wrong. Or yeah, like, I don't yeah. want to misidentify things. Yeah, but yeah, also yeah, on the yeah, same yeah. part of, that's part of like getting into nature. Is exactly. That so much, you can't know it all. Yeah. You can barely yeah. like it all. Let yeah. them know it all. Exactly. Like, it, you can't, you can't do that. So, um, I like that because I, I, lo I love being having that curiosity and even going onto Twitter and yeah. seeing a, a spider, a, yeah, exactly. a, a macro shot of a spider that I'd never seen before yeah. Yeah. amazes me. It so, works in that context yeah, as well, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll go with that. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Into the Wild. It's Not been a pleasure to talk to you and learn so much about seabirds, including my new favourite bird, Frigate. Exactly. Just because like it's sure, is it fun to say? <laughs> it is a brilliant species. I need to find out their scientific name. Actually, I'm sure that's probably quite interesting. Should we do it well. now? Should we, we do have it? a look? It's probably I'll like Frigatus. If... I'm going to go for Frigatus. Something else. Frigatus. Wait a minute. Have I got the right one? That doesn't <laughs> even look like it's. Has it got a very red? Yes, that's breast. it. Males in breeding Jesus. seasons have this huge red pouch. Yeah. You'd think they would be fine in the sea because that's like an armband. <laughs> They're just flat. <laughs> it's like a giant maybe red they armband. They haven't fully realised its function yet. <laughs> no, maybe not. They're taking the time. They're, yeah. not like the, yeah. they're not like the albatross like, or anything. Oh, we can float. We just hadn't realised this is what it's for. No. So the, the genus is Frigata. And then, oh, this is very proud. Second bit of the species <laughs> is... <laughs> Magnificence. Oh wait, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Magnificent frigata yeah, bird is F. Magnificence. Yeah, Magni okay, Magnificence. Yeah, that's the magnificent frigate bird. Beautiful for a bird that can't land on water. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> and on that note, um, Ben, absolute pleasure to chat to you, and all the best for 2022. Well, likewise. Yeah, excited. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. Thanks again for listening, Nature Nerds. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Ben is working on, then you can do so on social media. His links are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.